Well, good morning. How about a little love for the band this morning, huh? I, I was sharing with them in person last week how much I appreciate them. You know, it's been a crazy time for all staff members and, and volunteers, and just uh, our band is just hung in there, running to multiple services. Some of them unplugging instruments in one and coming to the other, and uh, I just very much appreciate them. And while we're at it, how about a little bit of love for our audiovisual folks and the people who put these videos and stuff together? Do a terrific job. And somewhere Mitch is watching us downstairs on a camera, and we appreciate Mitch and all the stuff that uh, he does around here. And we're, we're, we're very, very thankful. Welcome to everybody that's watching online, as every, well as everybody that's in here. And so we're in this series, uh, Politics, uh, Religion, and Church Unity. And so this couple weeks ago, I was doing some research, and Tom Rainier... Uh, posted a rather benign question on his uh, Twitter feed, and it just blew up. This was his question. What are some of the silliest things you have ever heard of churches fighting over? Now, there's, there's always the usual kind of stuff, you know, how cool should you set the temperature or the heat or whatever, and color of walls and carpet and that kind of thing. But a lot of them were kind of absurd. And he had a big list, and I narrowed it down this morning just for, for time's sake. But I just want to share some of the answers to the questions. What are the silliest things that your church has ever fought over? So here's one. Arguments over what type of canned green beans you can serve. I know the answer to that. None. Like, no green bean tastes good to me anyway. Secondly, a fight whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. I'm kind of dying to know how they figured that one out. There's lots more corny stuff to come. <laughs> a church argument and vote to decide if there should be a clock in the sanctuary. Sounds like a very timely argument, right? <laughs> Y'all are a lot better than the early service. <laughs> a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black, brown, two, three, or four drawers. Seems like they needed to have an official cabinet meeting of the church leadership, didn't it? <laughs> Business meeting arguments over whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings. Sounds like kind of wacky to me. <laughs> Coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Maybe they started the Right Blend Fellowship Church. <laughs> Number seven, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. Number eight, a major conflict when the youth borrowed a punch bowl that had not been used in years. And number nine, a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. And they said it looked like liquor and therefore they should not do that. <laughs> the last one, 
Some church member became mad at another church member because that church member hid the vacuum cleaner. And there was a major fight and a major split. And that's how the second Electrolux church was born. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I have, so thank you for laughing. <laughs> you know, obviously we can laugh at those kinds of things. But you know, when you really get right down to it, church fights and church division are not a laughing matter. And as we've kind of talked about in this series, politics and religion and church unity, really the, the focus is not, if you've been paying attention, it's not really on politics at all. It's just the, the rhetoric that surrounds the pandemic situation and the political situation that's creating division in our church. You know, over the past five months, we've had to accept a lot of changes because of COVID-19. And how many of you are like me? Just enough already. Like, right? Like, you just want to scream that like you're just tired of it. You know, people want to be around each other. People want to do things with each other. We want things to go back to the way that they were prior to March. We want schools to operate normally. We want churches to operate normally. How many of you just like to see some football games, that, you know, this year? All different levels, right? Be nice to go to a movie once in a while. I mean, we're just kind of tired of it. You know, you'd like to see businesses make money, and you'd like to go on a, a normal vacation. How many of y'all are tired of these? Yeah, yeah, right? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm tired of these. I mean, I understand it. I get it. But I am tired of it. And I'm tired of walking around in church services before the service with my hands so deep in my pocket so I can remember, you know, that you're not supposed to shake hands with anybody. I'm weary of, of the news that seems to change every day on this kind of thing. I don't know if you saw it. It was early in the week on NBC News. It's a new study. You know, it was a different new study every week. And it said that, um, uh, that they've, they've now figured out that six feet is not really far enough to social distance. <laughs> 26 feet is what we should be doing. Like, really? Come on. I mean... Like I said, I get this kind of stuff, but I think we're all just kind of tired of it. And I think we would all be in agreement over that. But we also know that there are opinions all over the map, right? I mean, we all have our own opinions on this. Some people think we should be doing more. Some people think that we should be doing less. And there are solid Christians on both sides of the pandemic rhetoric. There are solid Christians on both sides of the, the political spectrum. And these issues have just been so divisive. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. But obviously, as we talked about in the beginning, we're not the first church to experience division. And there were churches, and we looked at one of those last week in the New Testament that had division, and we looked at the church at Corinth. Today, we're going to look at the church in the, the final part of this series. Look at the church in Rome. How many of you have ever been involved in a food fight? Anybody in here have been involved in a food fight? Okay, probably more of you, but you're just not going to admit it. So when I was up at the camp, we, you know, that, that was kind of an issue, and so that camp I used to work at, and so we used to 
to do, we finally reached a good compromise. We would tell the kids at the end of the week that we would take them outside and we would supply the stuff and they could have a food fight. I mean, like eggs and flour and chocolate syrup and ketchup and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of where food fights usually are in school cafeterias or, or camps or that kind of thing. Well, in the early church here in, in Rome, there was a food fight of sorts that was brewing. And, and this is kind of the issue, just to kind of give you a little bit of background. In Rome, there were Christians who, before they became Christians, they offered meat to the little gods as sacrifices, little g, right? And they would offer meats, and then those meats would be taken, and whatever was left over would be sold to the, to the public for general consumption, now, these Romans that had become Christians, who previously did that, it appalled them that other Christians would actually buy that meat and eat it, that meat that had been offered to idols. They didn't see how you could possibly do that. So let's listen to what Paul has to say to these folks. We're going to begin in verse 1, be up on the screen here. On the, the side screens too, and, and obviously if you have a phone or a Bible, check it out there too. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. Accept the person who is weak in faith. Welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then listen to this question he asked. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So they're taking food fight to a whole new level here, right? And at first you think, well, this seems pretty silly that they are fighting over basically meat and potatoes. Until you think about all the absurd things that the churches fight over as we have mentioned. And it seems kind of crazy that a group of believers would get so married to their food preferences that they would literally think other people who didn't have the same food preference we're not even Christians. Kind of crazy, right? I mean, I mean, you think about that. But that's where things were. It's the same today. You know, we mentioned some absurd things a while ago. Let me share some things with you that I have seen churches fight over that aren't nearly so absurd. A couple of them happened here. Most of them are other places. Obviously, the carpet colors, things like that. Whether or not you can play cards. Choir robes. Obviously, music is always a big thing in churches. What version of the Bible? Should you use technology or should you not use technology? Clothing preferences, beards, goatees, hairstyles, what you can do on Sunday and what you can't do on Sunday. Of course, politics. And then now you can add the whole COVID-19 pandemic to this list. Where it comes from, how serious it is, how we should respond to it, the politics that surround it. And you know in a community like ours, you have people at both extremes. I mean, we have people in our community that believe you shouldn't get outside unless you have a hazmat suit on. 
And then we have people on the other extreme that, that don't even think that, that it exists. Or if you're a Christian, then you couldn't possibly catch it. And COVID-19 is just the latest in a series of things that Satan will use to divide the church against each other. And when we allow that to happen, we are violating that prayer request that Jesus made in chapter 17 of the book of John that we talked about the first week. And I just want to remind you of that this morning. And it reads this, verse 21 of John, that, the, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. Notice that, just as you, that they may all be in one just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He tells us, and we went over this, that everybody is to be one. And then when you get to the Apostle Paul, he uses some different kind of terms. He uses that oneness term, but he also talks about being one body. And he talks about being one family. Now think about a family. There are bonds that you have with your family that are different than you have with anybody else. I mean, you may have differing political views with your family and you may live in different places and you may have different perspectives about different things but ultimately you're still a family and you're still bond together and what is it that knits you together it's love and that's what what, what we're t- we've been talking about it's love that bring us, brings us together and we, we put aside our opinions and our thoughts and those kinds of things for the good of the entire church. And that's what Jesus was praying for, that we might all be one. So let's go back to Romans. And I just want to, I want you to notice some things that Paul says to the Romans that apply to us today. And the first one is this. My opinions... Or my way of doing things are just that. They can't become the litmus test of what is right and wrong for all believers. What's going on here? Romans 14. We're having a disagreement. They're fighting over food choices. One person says, you can eat anything you want. The other person says, no, you can only eat vegetables. And isn't that how it usually starts? The division usually starts in a church. One person has an opinion that goes this way. Somebody else has an opinion that goes this way. And and that begins to create the conflict. And let's understand, this is a gray area. And it's gray areas that we're talking about. This, this, This is not thou shalt or thou shalt not. That's not what we're talking about. This is not somebody says, well, I don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, that, we got a problem with that. That's a doctrinal issue. But we're talking about all those gray areas that scripture doesn't necessarily say, you shall or you shall not. So that's what we're talking about. So the problem in Rome was certain individuals believed that their opinions about certain things were the only way to see the issues. And they became dogmatic about it. And if you didn't see it the way they thought you should see it, then that was just unacceptable and you were wrong. In other words, they were were taking their issues and they were filtering their faith through their issues. And we've kind of talked about this during this, this series. 
instead of the other way around. Your faith should come first and then you filter your issues or your opinions through your faith. We talked about it with politics. Politics should be filtered through your faith, not the other way around. Too many people put their politics first and then filter their faith through it. Well, these people were guilty of that regarding their opinions. And they were trying to filter their faith through their opinions instead of putting their faith first and filtering their opinions through it. And that's why it's so dangerous for us when we say divisive and dogmatic things like, well, I don't see how anybody can, can be, call themselves a Christian and vote Democratic. Or I don't see, I've heard it the other way, I don't see how anybody can call them a Christian, call themselves a Christian and, and vote Republican. Listen, folks, there are people on both sides, and I've, I've mentioned this to you before. If you said, Dennis, could you go to the teachings of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and write a sermon that supports the Republican platform? Absolutely. And if you ask me, can you do that for the Democratic Party and support the Democratic platform from the words of Jesus in the New Testament? Absolutely, I could do that. You can support either point of view. We've said this. Both political parties have their problems. Both political parties have their Christians and have their non-Christians. And you need to vote your conscience. And on that Tuesday in November, you absolutely need to vote how you feel that you need to vote. But when we sit here and we take our opinion and we elevate it so that everybody else is wrong and we're right, you know what you call that? We have a name for it. It's legalism. You follow my rules or you're out. My opinions should be your opinions. And that's what was happening in this Roman church. And then Paul kind of raises it up a notch. Second one is this. My opinions when used to judge other, others represent an attitude of pride. So in verse one, he talks about, you're not supposed to quarrel, okay? And then he moves from there in verse three and he uses a couple terms that are kind of interesting. He says despising. He said you shouldn't despise somebody that doesn't act like you or agree with your particular opinion. When you despise somebody, you belittle them, you set them aside, you ignore them. They don't count anymore. And then he follows that with another phrase, passing judgment. When you pass judgment, you are condemning the other side. You have decided something about them and that they must be punished somehow. And that's how the devil divides the body of Christ. When we allow Satan to put us up on our high horse, and we're usually glad to do that, and we think we're smarter than everybody else, and we have more sense than everybody else, and we have more data, or we have more science behind what we think, or we have more faith, or, or we know the Greek better than everybody else, and we look at peek down at people that, that don't share our opinions, and we attack them, and we put them down, we publicly humiliate them. We post belittling things on, on social media. And during this time, I have heard Christian brothers and sisters in our congregation calling each other names on social media platforms. Really? We are better than that. We are so much better than that. That's what causes the division. We let it get to that point. Thirdly, I am accountable 
to God for my opinions and my attitudes. I want to get back to that question that I kind of mentioned a while ago in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now you first look at that and you might think, oh, this is talking about a servant and a master in a, in, you know, in a sense of, of, of ancient times. But the servant here is a believer. And the master is God. So basically Paul is saying, who do you think you are, just as a fellow Christian, to judge another Christian? Because the Lord is able to make him stand. It's God's job to do the judging, not ours. I mean, it's like you're at work and maybe you have a boss and your, your job performance is up to that boss and then another boss comes along and gives you a performance evaluation. Like, yeah, you don't like that, right? It's not fair. It's not right. That's, that's what, what he's saying here. I'm accountable for my opinions and attitudes. Number four. My opinions and attitudes are capable of destroying others. So I'm going to kind of move through this passage. We don't have time to, to look at every single thing. But you jump down to verse 15. And he says, it doesn't even end with judgment. That's back earlier. He said, you get to verse 15. And he begins to talk about destruction. And this is what he says. If your brother or sister is distressed. If, if they're upset. Because you are no longer Acting in love, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. To think that we are capable of destroying somebody. That somebody that Jesus died for. To me, that destroy word ought to get my attention. It ought to scare me when I start thinking I'm going to blast a fellow believer on Facebook or whatever. Or I'm going to, in person or whatever. I'm not talking about different opinions and agreeing to disagree. I'm, no, nothing wrong with that. But I'm talking when you elevate your opinion so high and you're just ripping other people that you can literally destroy or ruin or wreck their faith. I don't want to be responsible for that. And I also don't want to be responsible for the unbeliever that sees that and thinks to themselves, Wow, if that's what it means to have Jesus Christ in your life, I don't want any part of that. If those two people that go to church are like that, why would I want to go to church? I don't want any part of that, and I hope you don't either. But that's kind of the feeling of this whole passage, of these people that are married to their opinions, and they exalt themselves to a place where they are the judge. It doesn't matter if they're doing it intentionally, or maybe they don't even realize that they're doing it, so it's unintentional. But they place themselves in a spot above God to judge other people. And then that can destroy them. It's being so dogmatic, condescending, and arrogant that the only way that we can exist together is for you to have complete conformity or agreement to my convictions. In other words, you have to believe the same way that I do. So let's stop for a minute and kind of ask a relevant question. Why is Paul taking an entire chapter of Scripture 
and part of the next chapter in chapter 15 to deal with this issue. I mean, why doesn't he just say, hey, all you guys that think it's okay to eat meat, y'all just go start another church, you can be called the beefist, right? Okay. And you people that think you just need to eat vegetables, you go start a church and we'll call you the Vegicostals. And, you know, we'll just be done with it, right? Why doesn't he do that? Because when you read scripture, you read the New Testament, you read the teachings of Jesus, you read Paul, and one of the most amazing thing God, one of the most amazing things that God did was he created this church for people of every background, for every economic, for people of every economic condition, for for every color, for every race, for every gender. That's what he created the church for. One unit and one body. And that we would be so deeply committed that nothing could tear us apart. And certainly a political position or a viewpoint on a pandemic shouldn't be tearing us apart. So if that's what Jesus wants for us, what does Satan want for us? Just the opposite, right? Division, judgment, arguing with one another, despising pride, little tests to decide who's in and who's out, little exams maybe you form in your mind to decide, well, if this person does this, then they're spiritual, and if they don't do this, then they're not spiritual, just that kind of stuff. So Paul proposes a solution for all this, for the meat and veggies, the differing political views, contemporary worship versus regular worship, whatever, and this is number five. To overcome my opinions and attitudes, I need to walk in love. I want to go down to verses 19 through 21. And this is what he says. Let us therefore make every effort. So every effort. He says, let us. So he's talking to all of us. Not some of us. Talking to all of us. To do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification means to build somebody up. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that comes, causes someone else to stumble. Sometimes in this passage, they use the word stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block. So when he says make every effort, when, when you read this verse, he's not saying, hey, just tolerate that person. He's, he's not saying just you know, be nice to people that are different or have a different opinion than you do. He's not saying just endure their wrongness. He's kind of basing what he says on two, two phrases. One of the phrases went back to verse 15 where he says, when we act the way that we've been describing this morning, you're not walking in love anymore and you should be walking in love. And then the second phrase is that phrase that I mentioned, every effort. So not just tolerate and putting up with them, but we try to understand them and we love them even though they think differently. And this kind of gets back to what we talked about last week. Remember that stand where you sit principle that I talked about, which is basically the idea is, from Rufus Miles, is that our life is not formed in a vacuum. Our perspective of life, our view of life. 
Our view of life is formed with all the things that happen in our life. Our experiences, our environment, where you were born, where you grew up, what your parents were like. Did your parents get divorced? Did they not get divorced? How many kids were in your family? What kind of education you had? All, your whole life experiences helps determine your perspective. And because we're all different, we all tend, because of our experiences, we can have some different perspectives. So I kind of talked about that last week, and I want to see if I can give you a a make-believe illustration of what that might look like. So imagine a guy that grew up in the 60s. He wasted his youth chasing the folly of the hippie generation into the 70s, LSD, marijuana, free love, the false teachings of Timothy Leary. That was his folly. Eventually, the drug use led to homelessness and a frail, pockmarked, diseased body. Then, like the prodigal son, he came to know Jesus Christ. He repented of his sins And his life began to change. A local church wrapped their arms around him. They accepted him. They began to disciple him. He began to change and transform. He began to grow in his faith. And eventually his his hippie friends wouldn't have even recognized him anymore. His eyes, they sparkled with hope. His demeanor just beamed with the love of Jesus Christ. And through the decades, his life just kept changing and he became a deeply respected leader in his church. One day, a 25-year-old youth pastor has this great, creative, fun idea for his youth group. They're going to have a 60s party. And it's going to be complete with tie-dye t-shirts and beads, and long-haired wigs, and blacklight posters, smoke machines, peace signs. Do I have to go any further to kind of see, for you to see where this is headed for that unsuspecting youth pastor? To him, those CD, the music on those CDs, that's, that's nothing more than you know, antiquated soft rock music, nothing compared to the vulgarities that blare out in thumping music today. The costumes, they're nothing more than, you know, a way of, of laughing at each other. The, the rest of the stuff, the decorations, they're just harmless fun. But to that ex-hippie, the 60s were anything but harmless. Those songs are anthems to the sin and destruction of that day. The costumes represent misguided philosophies. Can you imagine the feeling in the pit of his stomach when he sees his church decorated to resemble his life before Christ? Can you see the stand where you sit perspective now? Neither one of them are wrong. They're just looking at it from two different perspectives based on their life experiences. That's kind of a modern day picture of what we're talking about. 
And this make-believe scenario, along with similar scenarios, we kind of have to ask ourselves what Paul asks us in verse 15. What does love require of me? What does love require of me when I disagree with somebody? What does love require of me when somebody's on the, the other end of the political spectrum from me? What does love of require of me when I don't see eye to eye with somebody on an issue? What efforts are required of me when I don't get my way? Does it mean you have to change your convictions or your opinions? Absolutely not. No, that's not what we're saying. Folks, we are here not to compete against each other. We are here to complete each other in the body of Christ. And I just want to kind of close with three principles this morning. I actually came across these. They're from Chuck Swindoll, and I've kind of adapted them a little bit. But if we would put these three principles into practice, it would totally change every church in this country. The first one is this. Being graceful starts with acceptance. Accepting another person doesn't mean I have to agree with them. We can respectfully degree, disagree with another person over ideas and opinions and convictions without rejecting the person. Acceptance leaves room for a divergent view of opinions. Acceptance allows another person to be different without me being judgmental. It takes time to understand and it, acceptance also gives the, benefit of the, doubt, the benefits of doubt to other people. Second one is this. Being graceful releases those who have harmed me to answer to God for their actions. All of us one day will answer to God for what we do. That means I don't have to play the Holy Spirit for other people. God will take care of it one day. Thirdly, a commitment to being graceful keeps me from judging others. I cannot be their judge because I am not qualified. Let me explain that just a little bit more. I am not qualified because I don't have all the facts. Even if I did have all the facts, I have enough trouble governing my own life without worrying about everybody else, right? I'm also not qualified because I cannot be objective. I've got my own biases, my own prejudices, my own preferences. We all do. So that make, means I'm not qualified because I'm going to judge people based on that. Thirdly, I can't judge because I can't redeem. Only Jesus can do that. I can't do anything but reject or judge. But Jesus can redeem. Imagine how these principles could change churches, communities, families, schools. But you know, if all we're going to do is imagine, it's not going to make much difference. The only way anything changes is if we put these principles into practice. And then let me close with this. It's the same thing we've closed with each week. Disagree politically. Love unconditionally. And pray for unity. 
I mean, if you, if you walk away with nothing else from this series, I hope you come away with that. It's okay to disagree politically. It's okay to disagree about pandemic rhetoric or anything else. Disagree politically, but love each other unconditionally and pray for unity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today and uh, Father, we thank you for these principles and Father, we thank you that when things arise in our church that Father, you address those things and we have scripture to fall back on and to look on. And Father, I pray for us corporately this morning. I pray as a church that, that people can look at us and Father, we're unified and people can look and say, you know, everything's so divisive in our world. But, Father, that church, they don't all, they see things the same way, but yet they love on each other and they agree to disagree. And, Father, I pray for us that we realize that the world is watching us and we have a responsibility to them, but we also have a responsibility to each other, to love each other, not to, to degrade each other or to destroy each other but Father you call us to love each other Father help us to learn to disagree amicably to disagree while still caring for somebody Father help us not to let these divisive issues and whatever it is now there'll be something else 10 years from now help us to have the right perspective on these things help us to put these grace principles into action pray all these things in Jesus name